0: All right, together with the church around the world, we shift gears out of Advent, which is that time that we celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world some 2,000 years ago, and the future coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world. But we shift from that, and we begin to celebrate a time that's referred to as Epiphany. Epiphany is one of the three major Christian celebrations, along with Christmas and Easter, and it's celebrated to commemorate the presentation of the infant Jesus to these guys, these magi, these star worshippers, who had no clue they were following God, but they started following the star, and they somehow end up in Bethlehem. And though nobody knows how many there were, we kind of assume there were three because of you know the song, <laughs> and because there were three gifts. We have no idea how many people were there. <laughs> we three kings of Orient are right. <laughs> Epiphany is derived from a Greek word which means manifestation and appearing. It means to appear. And in the context of faith, it's a term that describes the appearance of the invisible divine being, God himself, who as he comes into manifestation, as he comes to appear, God among us, it's Jesus Christ. In a broader sense, though, Epiphany points to this kind of theological understanding that faith itself requires an action of God. In other words, we can only have faith when God manifests himself to us in some personal way, in some open way. And it requires God to give us insight and to give us understanding. It's not just a human thing. We can't just decide to have faith. Faith needs God for it to emerge within us. That's why in Paul's words, uh, he says in Ephesians 2, for it is by grace that you have been saved. It's by grace, by God's favor that you actually have this sense that God's pulling you to himself, that you're safe. And it, it, it's through faith. It comes to you through faith. And he says, and this, this faith, it's not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. Not by work so that anyone can boast. You can't boast that you have faith. No, we are God's workmanship. The fact that we're in this deal is evidence that God was involved to bring us into this deal. It's called, in theological speak, prevenient grace. It means the thing that seeks God, the thing in us that wants to seek him, is what he put in us. He put the seek in us before we could seek him. Right. Faith is not just a human choice. It demands this action of God. Uh, as a young guy, young man, I remember I thought I had to, I was responsible to create faith in others. So I'd I'd, I'd want to get ready to talk to them. And I'd get all my arguments all lined up, my apologetics, my my responses to their rejection. And I thought I could talk them into it, you know, like like an impassioned lawyer. And uh, so I always was looking for the opportunity to pounce on people in the name of the Lord. (laughs) But we are not responsible to produce faith in people. We cannot pull it off. We cannot pull it off in our friends, our family, our kids. You cannot make faith happen. You and I need God to make faith. We need God to know God. Hmm? We do have a role to play. In Romans chapter 10, uh, Paul pens, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can we even call on the one whom we have not believed in, and how can we believe in him in the one of whom they have not heard? How can people believe in someone they haven't heard about? And how can they hear without somebody telling them, talking to them about it, preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What he's really saying is, what you and I do is we simply present the message of what God has done in our lives. And that's our role, not to produce faith in them, but to talk about the faith that has occurred. And in that process, watch what it says in verse 17. Consequently, because you do this, faith comes. Faith, Prevenient grace. Faith comes when you're just telling them the story. It presents itself to them, right? From hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. We just simply need to tell people about what's going on in us. About what little we know about Jesus. Because we don't know all that much um, about how he's messing with us. We need to tell them about how he came, we know that, how he died, how he rose again. And how he keeps mugging us and changing us. And we need to be honest about the fact we don't see him. And so sometimes, you know, we we get a little sketchy in our faith. Sometimes I get the atheist flu. You know, I don't know if I can believe for two or three days. And all of a sudden I recover. (laughs) And I find myself believing. (laughs) And uh, it's a little weird. But it's also pretty amazing. This dance of God pulling me to himself from my heart. When we share people with the, about this and we talk about what we have experienced, the message isn't always received. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says that the message about the cross, the message about Jesus, for some people it's foolishness. Who is it foolishness to? People who are perishing. But to people who are being saved, I love that being saved. It isn't like this moment. It's that something's going on ongoing. And, and it's the power of God. When we hear about God messing with us and his reaching out to humanity and how he pursues us, it's like, oh, it's the, we think, oh my gosh, I love that message because we know we're drawn into it, but there's something going on. We're not perishing here. We've crossed some kind of threshold of faith that makes it make sense to us. And then he goes on in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to some people, to the Jews, it's like a stumbling block. They, can't, they just can't get it. And it's foolishness to Gentile people. But to those whom God has called, to those whom God has, hey, called, both Jews and Greeks, those that thought it was stumbling black, those that thought it was foolishness at one point. But to those who were called among the Jews and the Gentiles, the Greeks, Christ becomes the power of God. He becomes the wisdom of God. All of a sudden, it's like this message is not stumbling over. This message is not foolish. This is it. God is in pursuit of my life. It becomes the center of your life. Well, the big question is, what makes a person called? Because those that are called receive the message, those that are not don't. So when you're sharing the message and some don't receive it, it implies they're not called. What does that mean? What makes a person called? I think the answer is prayer. Paul said in Romans 10 and 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. I think we're supposed to pray for people to be open to the message of life. And somehow when we pray for them, they hear a calling. It may take years, but they hear a calling. And what that means is we share with people what's going on in our lives. And if they're closed, we don't get mad at them. We don't just start jacking up our intensity and become zealots for God. That's what we're supposed to do. What we're supposed to do is note to self, pray for them. And when we pray for them, we just stand back, love them, and watch for God. Again, it takes a direct working of God in the human life to see and understand God. It takes epiphany. And, and what this means, and I, it, it's, it's, a, it's a gnarly kind of thing to me, but what it means is that there's a whole lot about God that remains mysterious. Um, in Romans 11, Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, which the gospel holds. How unsearchable are his judgments. Unsearchable. I mean, there's stuff we can't even search. And and his paths, you want to trace his paths? They're beyond tracing. You cannot get a big enough piece of paper to trace God, he's beyond your paper. You cannot get your mind around God. You cannot get your mind around love. You cannot get your mind. It's, all we can do is throw our hearts and minds into God, free fall, into eternity, into infinite. The problem is most of us, particularly we American evangelicals, we're pretty uncomfortable with mystery. We, uh, we like to come across like we know everything about faith in God and the B.I.B.L.E. That is the book for me. And and forgive me, forgive us leaders who talk with such certainty. I mean, we don't know that much about God. We don't. We know a little. And we talk about things like intimacy. You remember the text from Romans 8? For you did not receive a, get, a receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba literally means, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, like, a, it's like a common word meaning daddy. It doesn't really mean father. It means Abba, Abba. It means daddy, daddy. It's like this, this image of a small child who's going, daddy, daddy. Paul says, somehow by the Spirit, there's this intimate thing in us and our, our, our Spirit himself testifies with our Spirit that we're God's children. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, coars with Christ. So there's this, this deep family intimacy and it's wonderful to be sure, but it's still jammed with mystery. I mean, it isn't jammed with familiarity. Any more than when I was still calling my dad, when I was really little and I called my dad, Daddy, I guarantee you, I felt I loved him, I was excited to see him, but I didn't get him. He was a little, I was a little awed, but he he freaked me out a little. I knew he would appear and disappear. I didn't know all what he did during the day, but when he came back, I was excited, but he was like, whoa, it's Dad, daddy, right? We need to be very careful about our sense of intimacy with God as though that intimacy means we have full knowledge. Because we don't, we can act like we have this deep and clear understanding, and you know, but we just have a little little fifth grandchild, little Eleanor, we call her Nora, and uh, she's about three months old, and she recognizes us now, mostly her mom and her dad, Gami, she recognizes I'm still a bit of a mystery foreigner, you know, but I get in there and I talk to her and she just all of a sudden she Connects. She, I, th- th- we have this connection. But I'll guarantee you in Nora's little mind, she doesn't get it. She doesn't think, oh, Papa, you're the Papa of the family, and you're a pastor, and you do this. She doesn't get that. She doesn't get it. I'm just this prop <laughs> with a tad of familiarity. See, at, at best, that's our faith. Uh, It was St. Ignatius in the second century. He wrote, and he's an old guy when he wrote this, I'm only beginning to be his disciples. Only beginning. See, in in faith we're babes at best. We need to acknowledge our paleness of our understanding. And, And we need to say, as Paul did, we see through a glass darkly that we only know in part Paul said in another place, see, though the Bible speaks of a God who's beyond knowing, I'm telling you, for most of my ministry life, I would string Bible verse with Bible verse and come across with this air of absolute knowledge of God. You know, as though he and I would sit down every day and he would explain to me the depth of understanding and I would come across, well, the word of God says it, word of God says it, word of God says it. Truly Absurd. How can we say we know God? We only get glimpses of him. We only have Nora knowledge of him. There should be a deep admission of our unknowing. And I, I think we should be f- always nervous about sounding too confident. There's, in theology, there's what's called cap- ca- cataphatic theology and apophatic theology, what that means, those big words mean. Cataphatic theology is what we can say positively about God. We can say God is good. We can say that he became flesh and dwelt among us. We can say that he died and he rose again for us. We can say that he's reaching out to us. We can say that he answers prayer. There's a lot we can say. But that's cataphatic theology. But apophatic theology says there's a whole bunch of stuff we just don't know. And the notion of understanding scripture is understanding that there's a whole lot more we don't know than what we do know. And that our knowing is like a mountain. We're, we're grabbing with a spoon and putting dirt in our little wagon. And even though we can never, I and mean, we can continue to know and continue to grow and continue to understand, you are never going to get the mountain in your spoon. You're up against a huge unknowability. And there should be that sense of submission and openness. The scripture says in Hebrews, That God in the old covenant spoke in various ways and in various methods, but he has spoken to us in these last days through his son. And his son is the exact representation of his nature. And that the son is the glory of his, the the, the light, how does it say it? It's the radiance of his glory, which is like saying, if God is light, Jesus is the bright. In other words, if you run into Jesus, you run into God. But that doesn't mean we know everything about God because we see Jesus on the pages or we've experienced him in our hearts. Jesus said, I am the door. The door to what? To something beyond knowing. The door to this building. Most of you, all of you walk through the door. But the door doesn't tell you everything what's inside. We don't know everything, even though we know Christ, even though we understand he's the door, even though we know he gave us entrance. We step into the vastness of something infinite. You cannot get your mind around infinite. Where do you start? You don't know the middle, you don't know the beginning, you don't know the end, it's infinite. All you can do is fall, free fall. You walk in the door and free fall. But we American men, we love, we evangelicals, we love cataphatic theology. I've got four steps to answer prayer. Can I share with you four spiritual laws that will absolutely guarantee your salvation? And uh, I'll give you three reasons. Tithing will guarantee you divine prosperity. What is divine prosperity anyway? What exactly is that? The truth is sometimes we get some stuff and a lot of times we don't. And we're bumping up against the eternal. It's, and it's a tad sketchy. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Don't question this. Sometimes prayer gets answered, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes God shows up in your life and you're in the midst of trouble and he's right there with you and yet he's silent. And other times when in the midst of trouble, he shows up and he moves heaven and earth and he changes the situation and life is different because of a miracle. I wish we could figure out how it works. I wish we could put God in a nice box. If you do this and you do this and you like a like a vending machine. Man, you put the money in, you take your selection and it comes out the bottom or you kick the thing. But if we're not careful, see, if we don't, you've got to understand, God is not a vending machine. He's not in, under our control. He, most of the time, the biggest thing God wants us to understand, the message of life, and I know this sounds maybe discouraging, but the most important thing God's trying to get to us in this side of heaven is that he's with us. He's with us in the good. He's with us in the bad. He's with us in the smile. He's with us in the cry. He's with us. He isn't just committed to fixing everything right now. He's in committed to being with you whether it's fixed or not. When I was in the room with my mom dying, the last moments, I looked around the room and I thought, I'm glad everyone in here is with me. The people that matter, the fact that they were there, is that they walked this through. We were together. The most powerful influential people in your life are those that are with you, that know you, that stay by your side when it's good, when it's bad. And a doctor could have walked through with some shot and said, I've got it! Look out! Gave my mom a shot and if she res- you know, just resuscitated and was all better, we'd all go, thank you, doc! Bye! Mom! The fixer, we might have remembered his name or her name, But who really mattered were those that were with us. God's not just committed to fixing your life, He's committed to your life. That's why the scripture says, in times of trouble, God is with us. We tend to think, wait a minute, if God was with me, I wouldn't be in trouble. The psalm says, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even there your hand will guide me. We think, if God's hand was really there to guide me, I wouldn't be in this valley. Because we think God just fixes. Because we have just a glimpse of God. And we think the past experiences that we have define him. Listen, the biggest thing God wants you to know is he's with you. No matter what. He's always there. And your greatest solace should be not whether you hear a bad reporter, hear a good reporter. You get a promotion. Or you get fired. Your thought should be no matter what goes on, you're with me. And I'm trusting you. And I wish it was just logical. I, wish, I think God ultimately, and we know he does... This is one of the cataphatic aspects. We know that ultimately in the end, God deals with everything. And every wrong, every wrong is righted. But that's not till the end. Sometimes things get righted, sometimes they don't. Sometimes life is like a flight. I go on a lot of flights. And sometimes life is like, you know, with faith, it's like a flight where the sky is clear and the and the air is just calm, no bumps. Flight attendants smiling. And then there are some other flights that I've gotten on. One I was on just a number of years ago coming into St. Louis. It was a thunderstorm. And as we got into those clouds, I mean to tell you that plane was shaking like crazy. And we were like Mexican jumping beans in there. And I looked at the flight attendants and they weren't smiling. They were concerned. This concerned me even more. Lightning bolts whoosh, right by the wings. So, I mean, those lightning bolts, they were chasing us. They were chasing us. And I remember thinking in that moment, I remember calming myself because I can get freaked. Calming myself saying, God, I am trusting you. I can do nothing. I can do nothing. But you're with me. And I hope those engineers that built this plane knew what they were doing. <laughs> right? We got on the ground. But see, faith is like that. Sometimes everything just, you know, everything's great. you got angels smiling. I mean, things are happening. Prayers are being answered. Everything's sweet and calm and awesome. And then sometimes you hit spots where you think, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet something inside says, no, you haven't. It's called faith. And the biggest miracle, the biggest power is that God's at work in your life. He's, he's not logical. It's, he's, he's what philosophers and theologians would call teleological. Teleological means you're going somewhere, but it's not logically how you get there. It's a little bit like health. You know, Sometimes we think health is just logical. If you just eat right and exercise, you'll live long. Well, the reality is all of us have known people who have eaten right and exercised and then died with a heart attack at 47. Right? Or you can eat right and exercise and you know, be moving into your 50s and you're doing great. And all of a sudden as you're stepping across the road to go work out, bam, a bus hits you and kills you. So eating right and exercising did not help you. Why? Because there's more going on in life than just what you do. It's called teleological. There's a whole bunch of inputs. God is teleological. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on. Most of the time he does this. Most of the time this we can count on this, but not all the time. Most of the time when you pray and take a promise and you stand at it, you can see changes. There's a lot of times when you don't. And if you reduce God to some kind of a logical vending machine, you will be freaked out. Or you can just lean up and say, God, I don't get it. It's like the time that Jacob, later called Israel, is praying for his two grandkids. And you, you pray for the oldest with your right hand. I mean, it's just the way it is. It's, it's the way. You put your right hand on the oldest, you put your left hand on the youngest, and so he brings, Joseph brings his two kids, and, and, and Israel is now he's called, is putting his hands on the kids, but what he does is Joseph puts the one kid, the oldest kid on, on uh, uh, Israel's right and the youngest kid on Israel's left, and here's what Israel does. Freaks out Joseph. What you doing? He said, I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm telling you, God switches hands on us all the time. You can't put him in a box. He's not to go. You are not going to figure out God. And those of us that think we can figure out God, we are just being morons. We're little Nora morons. She's not a moron. She's really sweet, but she's three months. She's a moron. Come on, I'm Papa. The Papa, the Papa. (laughs) She's brilliant. Three three months old. That being said, though we're dealing with an unknowable God, God loves it when we try to know him. God loves it when we move toward him, when we push into that unknowing so that we can have more experience. He doesn't want us to box him in with it, but he wants us to know him. He wants us to take that spoon and dig out mountain and put it in our bucket to discover him. You have epiphanies, aha moments. You're like going to a movie and you, you see these two or three storylines going. You have no idea, reading a novel and you're reading these storylines, you have no idea how they're going to intersect. And all of a sudden, somewhere in the novel, all of a sudden, somewhere in the movie, it all comes together and you go, oh, aha, you've had an epiphany. See, what God wants us to do is pursue and look for him in our lives, even though we don't see him and seek him until we go, oh, there you are. He loves us. He wants us to discover him. Beautiful text in Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you. He wants us to know him, to see him more clearly. There's a lamenting in his heart when we don't seek him, when we don't try to know him. He speaks of Israel this way when Israel was just apathetic about him. It says in Isaiah 1, the ox, the ox knows his master. The the, the ox knows his master. The donkey knows his owner's manger. But you guys, you don't know me. My people don't understand me. He's lamenting. Why don't you care enough to look for me? See, we may not, not be able to know much, but we can still grow in our knowledge of him. And he wants us simply to seek him. I'm convinced we don't seek him because we don't really believe he's in our lives. Why would he be? You're just a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, barista, mom, lawyer, garbage worker. Why would he be in your life? You're not doing anything important. And yet, I think that's the accusation of hell. I think God says, and reveals to us, we know this, cataphatic, that we know this, that we are dreams come true from heaven. That He intentionally wanted you on this planet. And He has a role for you in this world. And if we dare to believe that, we would seek Him. So we don't seek Him because I don't think we believe He's there. Remember that text that says that, that without faith it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11? Without faith it's impossible to please God because He who comes to God must believe that He is. That He is what? That He's there. And then he rewards those who seek him. The reason you don't seek him is because you don't think he's there. If you went home today, I bet you most of you will not look around your apartment or your house to find me. You know why you wouldn't look? Because I'm not going to be there. But if I put a note on your table, hey amen, I'm hiding in your house. <laughs> if you believe the note, two choices. 911 or... You'd look, and you keep looking until you were convinced it was a hoax. We don't seek God because we don't believe He's there. We think it's a hoax. He's the zombie in your life. We don't believe it, so we don't diligently seek Him. So we're apathetic. That's our problem. We use knowledge as some kind of a a a position. I'm saved. I got saved September seventeenth, nineteen seventy four. We lean into that truth, and that's where we stand. I know the word of God, and I know this, I know that. We think we know so We don't know Jack. We just have glimpses. We need to keep seeking. We need to stay humble. We need to be open. We need to not limit God to what we have known in the past. We need to acknowledge we only see things in bits and pieces, and we need to realize that God is calling us to look for him. Prayer in the daily office I've been praying through advent i love this it's quote through your incarnation and your birth you established your presence among us teach us to recognize the many forms of your presence in the church and in one another i love this see epiphany we recognize that god is in our midst even when we don't recognize him we recognize that those wise men from the east <laughs> They were pagans. They were star worshippers. They didn't even know they were seeking God and they ran smack into him. We need to understand that no matter what we, when these impulses when we follow things, a lot of times we're seeking God, don't even know it. In his great book, The Confessions, Augustine repeatedly said, as he recalled the events of his life, he repeatedly said, before I received your light, you were speaking to me, but I did not know it. And yet you were there. We're to seek him because he is amongst us. Let me close By remembering that he is among us at the table. Let me invite those of you that are going to be praying or helping us with communion to come forward. Listen to this. In fact, all of you stand, would you? All of you stand with me? Listen to this text. Now, that very same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. This is after the resurrection, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, watch this, watch this. Jesus himself came up to them. These are the ones that he'd walk with for three years. He came up to them and he walked alongside them. Watch. But they were kept from recognizing him. I've read this verse so many times and I never noticed that, but they were kept from recognizing him. And one day years ago, I thought, What? They were kept from recognizing he walked up right next to him, and they were prevented from recognizing he was hiding? And I remember thinking, as I was thinking that, querying it, I heard in my heart, I really believe it was the Holy Spirit, I heard this, I do that to you all the time. Now, I'm not kidding you. My first response was, get behind me, Satan. Because that was brought up in an evangelical charismatic context, which meant that we thought we had to feel God all the time. Got to I feel. I just feel, feel so much. So we get, you know, get drunk in the spirit, man. Got to feel God and just be enamored with God, and then and then we had to have constant miracles. And God wanted to heal and deliver and move forward. And miracles needed to come, you know, because we read the whole book of Acts in one sitting. We think there were miracles everywhere. We, we failed to remember it was over thirty years, where there was a lot not going on. But, but still, you know, we want to, and I remember thinking, we used to pray because we thought, man, God, it must be sin in the church or the devil is dominating the world. And so most of my prayer life was fighting demons. I was praying more to the devil than I was to God. <laughs> so when I heard this text, you're hiding from, me, I, I thought, I just, that there's no way. And all of a sudden it started opening up. He hides from us. Why? Isaiah says, you're a God who hides himself. Why? Because he's the one that invited us to seek him. You only have to seek him because he's hiding. And then it goes on. It says, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus explained to them all that was said in the scriptures. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted like he was going farther. <laughs> he was acting like it. In other he had no intention to. He was messing with them. I think God messes with us he was trying to see if they'd say stay i think sometimes just sort of god just sort of moves on to one and know we feel say no 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 wait wait whoa, wait whoa, wait wait and they they urged him strongly do you ever urge him strongly stay with us for it's nearly evening the day is almost over so he went in to stay with them and when he was at the table with them he took bread he gave thanks he broke it and he said this is my this is deja vu moment this is last supper moment. And as he does this, it says, then at this moment when he gave, took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them, their eyes were opened. Deja vu. Epiphany. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And once they recognized him, he disappeared. <laughs> How cool is that? You caught me, but I'm gone. What if God loves that? You catch him, think he's gone. Where'd he go? The early church. This is why the church all the way through the 1500s till the Reformation came and there was a lot of just reaction that was stupid. Some was good. A lot of it was good. Some was stupid. One of the stupid things we did was up until that time, the table was the most important thing the church did. You know why? Because they believed that something happened when we came to the table and we gave thanks and we broke bread that somehow we would recognize him in ways we had not. That Jesus is uniquely present in the bread and uniquely present in the cup in a way that if we would come with living faith and living hope that he would reveal himself to us. This is an epiphany meal. This is a discovering God in our lives meal. That's why if you approach it with just, you know, hors d'oeuvres and just some sort of, well, you know, Jesus died for me. Hey, how you doing? And you don't stop and think, wait a minute. He's here. He's here as real as the day he returns. Somehow he, in some mysterious way, mysterious way, he's present in that bread and he's present in that cup when we give thanks and we declare it so by faith that Jesus comes in our midst. And listen to me if I brought that garment that Jesus wore the day that that woman touched his garment and she was healed, if I brought that garment and it was provable and demonstrable that this is the actual garment that happened, we would have millions. Let me touch the garment. Let me touch the garment. Something greater than the garments right in front of us. His body, his blood, and to some of us it means nothing shame on us something in us needs to repent and come and with a great honor realize we're touching his body and touching his blood and we're receiving it out of our lives Jesus said unless you eat my body and drink my blood you will have no life in yourself and he said this meal is is eternal life say what does that mean? I have no idea well isn't it just I mean isn't it just like symbolic Jesus didn't say, this is now the symbol of my body. This is now the symbol of my blood. He just said, this is my body, this is my blood. It freaked them out so bad so bad that people left. But Jesus didn't say, what well, just a minute I was being metaphorical. He let them go. He never explained it. On some level, we have no idea what this is, except Jesus is about ready to return to the earth in just a moment in that bread and in that cup. And are you ready to receive him? That's what this is. So lift the bread up. The night that he was betrayed, the scripture says that he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, This is my body. So, by faith, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you will take the gifts that we bring, the work of human hands, that which has come from the field. And that you will enter it in an incarnational way. That it will become for us the body of Christ. And so as a community by faith, we say, welcome, Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way he took the cup, would you lift the cup up? And when he had given thanks, he said, this is the cup in my blood the cup of the new the everlasting covenant and you told us Jesus to keep doing this over and over and over again as we remembered you as we made you present thank you for your presence right now in the cup we ask you come inhabit the cup and so we say Welcome into our midst, Lord Jesus Christ. You've returned. Let's prepare our hearts by praying as he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Come this morning with the heart crying, Daddy. Come with an openness to the Spirit, making you intimate with the Father, your Daddy but with awe, because you do not get him. You can only open your life to him. Come and receive the body and blood of Christ. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.